Well, hey, if you're new, either online or here in person with us this morning, we want to say welcome. We're really super grateful that you're here with us this morning. Um, If you're looking for a church home, we are hoping you might find one here. This morning, we're, we're, we're talking about this concept. We're calling it old to new. Um, and so, let's get into the text. So, so, turn your Bible on, grab your Bible, open your Bible, grab a pew Bible, open that one up, turn it to Mark chapter 2, verses 18. Verse 18 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So it's kind of a typical human thing, right? Especially a typical ultra-spiritual human thing, right? Is, is when we're doing something and someone else maybe isn't, we're wondering why they're not quite as spiritual as we are um, and why they're not doing exactly the things that we're doing, which is the case here with John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees. So uh, evidently, they, the, these guys make a very common practice of fasting. Um, the Jews in general tended to fast um, uh, there were two major fasts and four minor fasts uh, throughout the year. One, one mandatory fast was, was the, the, the day of Yom Kippur or the day of atonement. Um, they, they would fast in different times, uh, times of personal struggle, times when they were wrestling with sin. Um, these would be times for fasting. The different festivals would be times for fasting. Also, another one would be the, the idea of, of a time of mourning. The Jews would also fast um, during mourning and, and, and these different mourning times. Um, it was generally, it was, it was penance for sin, and it was supplication for deliverance was kind of the idea of fasting. And so fasting is, is kind of this, this practice that that we'll talk about here in a second, but, but you know, Jesus um, doesn't really hear, he, he's not saying that, that, that his disciples shouldn't fast or won't fast, but, but what he's saying here is that because of what's going on in the present circumstance of where they're at, there's no need for them to fast right now. There's no need for them to uh, make supplication for deliverance because their deliverance is at hand. There's no need for them to draw nearer to God through fasting at this point in time because God is near. Jesus is near to them. And, and so they're just in this spot here where, um, where they're not fasting. Obviously, everybody else is fasting and they're fasting fairly regularly. Um, but Jesus says this. He says that because the bridegroom is present... There's not a need for them to, to fast right now. But there was a time when the bridegroom is going to be taken away from them, and then they are going to fast during that time. That's the whole concept and the idea of the bridegroom is, is something that's just so um, intrinsic with our faith. That, you know, the Bible basically begins with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. We see Adam and Eve, and we see them two become one, and then we see in the end, in the book of Revelation, when everything, when the culmination of time happens, we see that there's going to be a wedding party, right? We're going to see a, a, a wedding supper of the Lamb. 
And, and, and every, all believers from all places are going to be gathered together in this time. You see, marriage is sacred because it is an earthly representation of the very nature and the character of God. The reason that we hold tight to marriage as Christians is because marriage is, is, is meant to be this earthly representation of the reality of who God is, of the relationship even that God has within himself, that God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Again, as we've talked before, the concept, the idea of the Trinity, it represents diversity brought into unity. Marriage is diversity brought into unity, and it's the cornerstone and it's the very basis by which society is really bedrocked and built off of. And as we see marriage go, we see the culture and the world around us go as well. I promise you, 85, I don't know what percentage of the problems, very high percentage of the problems that we're dealing with as a culture and as a people today have their core in the breakdown of the marriage and of the family unit in this world. This is why Christians stand for this. This is why we fight for marriage. This is why we believe marriage is a thing because we believe that it is a sacred thing. It's not something that's just random and just given and maybe some way that we have some kind of an idea of how to live together. No, it's much deeper than that. It's meant to represent who God is to the people around us. And so it's, it's, it's this huge thing. And then the idea, too, that marriage represents the idea of the groom and the bride and the groom's return for the bride. And so Jesus, if you remember, he's told us that he goes to prepare a place for us that where he is, we might also be. And in, in a Jewish wedding, in a Jewish Back in the day, remember Jesus also said that, that only the Father knows the day and the time. Well, all of these things are, are uh, they, they, they hearken back to the tradition of Jewish weddings. And so when, when, a, when a man and a woman became betrothed to be married together, they basically already entered into kind of a legal um, covenant relationship even at that point in time. And then what would happen is that the, the young man, he would go off and he would go back to his father's house or place, and he would begin to build either an addition or a separate dwelling or whatever that looked like for them for his bride. And, and while he was building and working on that, someone might pass by on the road and they might say, hey, when are you going for your bride? And his response to that would be, only my father knows. Because it was the father that would determine when the house and the, the dwelling was ready for, this, for the young man to go and get his bride. Because we know what any young man would probably do. He'd go get some, uh, a few two-by-fours and, and, and some sheet metal, and he'd scrap something together and run back and get her real quick. Because no, and the, But the father would make sure that he had prepared a proper dwelling place for his bride. This is the picture of the church and, and what it looks like for us, and that Jesus one day has promised to come and to return for this bride and this union and ultimately this, this wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's portrayed all through the Bible, this idea of the bridegroom, of the wedding, of this union and all of these things. And so this is incredibly important. So Jesus is saying, look, they don't, they don't fast while the bridegroom is there, but a time is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. And in those days, they will fast. And so we, we live in this time, kind of the, we, we live in a lot of really tension as Christians. We live kind of in the already, but not yet, right? We, we live in this idea that, that 
All of this is going to come to pass. We're, one day, we're going to be completely sanctified and, and, and in, in whatever way that, this, that looks like, that, that, that sin is going to actually have absolutely no pull on us anymore. We're not going to be subject to it in the same way that we are here. I mean, that all of these amazing new things are going to take place, but we kind of live in the already, but not yet. It's assured, it's, it's a promise for us, it's going to happen, but we still live in the tension of this world and the struggles of this world. See, John chapter 4 is a whole story as well about this idea of the bridegroom and, and, and Jesus and, and his kind of, as he uses all of this as imagery for the church. Remember, he meets a, a woman there, a Samaritan woman in particular by a well, right? And, and she's there at noon because most likely she's kind of marginalized in her culture because she's had five husbands. And, and, and so Jesus meets her there at this place on purpose and, and begins to, a dialogue with her about the well that she's drinking from. And, and he tells her, you know, the well that you're actually drinking from, the water that you're actually drinking just leaves you thirsty. In other words, he says, you, you're chasing something that you can't catch. You, you continue to chase after this water, but it only leaves you thirsty again. But he said, I, I have water that if you drink from that, you'll never, ever, ever thirst again. It'll actually satisfy you. It'll quench that thirst that's inside of you. And the lady finally, after, and I'm paraphrasing and shorten this up, but, but ultimately she says, okay, hey, look, if I don't have to come here to this well anymore, you got some water like that, I'll take it, right? Jesus says, okay, great. Go get, her, go get your husband. He gets right in her business, which Jesus always does when we say, hey, we'll take the deal that you've got for us. The next thing that Jesus does is he gets in your business a little bit, right? Not, not to tear you down, not to, not to, not to shame us, but, but to begin a healing process because there's a reality that, that, again, healing starts in honesty. Healing starts in the place of reality. And so Jesus asked that we would step over into that. And this woman, he says, hey, um, go get your husband. She says, look, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. Good job. You've been honest. You've had five. You've had five. And the guy that you're with right now is not your husband, right? And so when you really think about this, and especially from a cultural context, I mean, this is a big deal because this woman, she, she's really been marginalized to the point that the guy that she's with won't even honor her, do the honor, honorable thing for her. He won't count her as valid or worthy enough to marry, and she's just way on the fringe on this stuff, and she's struggling. But it's such a beautiful picture how, how Jesus is reaching out to her. And ultimately, the message of that story is from Jesus, I'll be your husband. Where, where the guy that you're with right now isn't faithful to you, he's not, he's, he's not doing what he's meant to do, he's, he's not treating you, I'll be your husband, because he is the bridegroom. Jesus, though, did give credibility to the concept of fasting. And, and I would hold that, that fasting is actually still um, a Christian principle. And, and we can fast in a number of areas. Can we click today? Are we clicking? Thank you. So remember, Jesus did tell them that they would fast, right? Right? And then, and then he tells us this, he says, and when you fast, not if you fast, Matthew 6, 
Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. It's this idea, too, that that we don't want to take something like fasting and have it just be an external thing that actually is meant to just look good in front of other people. If, if we get real with a lot of the motive behind the things that we do, the reality of even so many of our good works is that they're twisted by wrong motive because we want to look good in front of people. We have this thing where we, would, we, just, we just struggle with this, that, that even our good works are really an extension of our selfishness on a lot of levels. But Jesus tells us here that when we fast, you know, that that we're to do that in kind of more of a private setting, in a private way, not this public thing where we're trying to make ourselves look really pious or righteous or better than other people. Um, And and so he just tells us, he says to to do that, to, um, to do that more in private. So what is fasting and what does it mean for us today? And I think that fasting is this concept. It's this idea that what we're doing is that we're basically denying the physical a little bit so that we can enhance the spiritual. Um, It's not about self-flagellation. It's not about treating yourself poorly. Um, But it is about this idea that, that we would put off the flesh a bit for whatever that would come, if there's, if there's something that God puts on our heart or if we're really trying to hear from the Lord or we're trying to make a big decision in our lives and stuff, then I would encourage you at times to, to consider fasting. That I think that it's a very powerful tool that God has given us to help us to have some clarity. Because see, there's a reality, see, that was that when we're physically kind of um, full on every level, we're not spiritually minded a lot of times, but when we're physically, when you kind of starve that down just a little bit, it enhances the spiritual. It's kind of like putting a supercharger on your prayer life because what you do is every time you're kind of thinking that way or you're hungry or whatever, you just devote that time to prayer and to God. And, and, and so it kind of supercharges our, our, our spiritual life a bit. Um, and so I would encourage you, and I want to encourage us all, in this time and in this season, there's, there's a lot going on. And, and I mean, we, we just can't be a people who live with our heads underneath, uh, buried in the sand, when, when the reality of not just the world, but the community around us, the reality of the struggles and the hard things that are going on. So I would just call us all to maybe this next week to find a time and pick a time that might work the best for you. And be dedicated to fast and pray. And, and if, if fasting from food isn't something that you feel like you can do, maybe you could fast from something else. Maybe you could fast from social media. Maybe you could fast from the internet. Maybe you could fast from uh, the television. I don't know what that can look like for you. But to put something off that tends to have a draw on us, something that tends to pull on us a little bit, so that when you're missing it, you can dedicate that time to prayer. Because I believe, I, I know, A, that there's enough struggles within the community around us that we need to be in prayer. And we need to be a people who believe and understand that prayer is powerful. It's not our last-ditch effort. We shouldn't be saying there's nothing that we can do now except pray. We have to start there. We start with prayer 
Everything starts with prayer. Nothing good that God really does or moves in this world, I think that, or that the church helps to initiate, it all has to start in prayer. And if it doesn't, it's just not going to happen. So the encouragement is to be praying, to pray for our church body, to be praying for people within our church body, to be praying over the health of the people in our church body, the marriages, children, parenting, singleness, finances, the world around us, the struggles that we're having. I mean, we are living in a very tumultuous time, right? And just like Ben was talking this morning, I mean, on a global scale right now, there's a huge tension in the world. We're not sure which way things are going to necessarily go, but we do see the beginnings of some very troubling things happening right now. It's time for God's people to begin to realize that we are called to pray and to, at times, put a supercharger on that prayer through fasting. Um, you know, it's, it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle. We struggle. I'll just tell you that the body of Christ struggles to pray. That's the truth. We have a prayer meeting or something, prayer meetings in churches, and I'm not talking about just here. I'm talking about everywhere. They're always lightly attended. While the parties, we're all up for that. But we have to remember that we are called to pray, that God's people are called to pray. <laughs> I'm not throwing rocks. I'm just saying. We, we just, these are, there are always areas. We all have to move in these areas, and we have to do this. But this is about what God is doing, and let's click on that and go with this. So everything in our world and everything that we know about is actually moving from a place of new to old, right? You get a new car, it's getting old. You build a new house, it's getting older. Ourselves personally, we went from birth to we're getting older, right? We're all subject to entropy in this life. We're not getting better. We're actually breaking down, right? Things are not getting better in our lives. Things are, are aging and things are getting older. But the amazing thing is, is that Jesus then now begins to speak about this concept about old and new. And in the kingdom of God, we move actually from, um, from old to new. Not new to old. We're moving now from old to new. It's the picture of redemption. We, we, we have a lot of hockey going on in our family, and, and we were talking yesterday some uh, Jeannie and Brent were watching a hockey game. We had eight hockey games over this weekend, by the way, yeah, with two boys. It was crazy. But anyway, um, it's just watching the Zamboni. You're like, man, that is, there's something about that. They write songs about the Zamboni. They do. <laughs> Literally, people write songs about the Zamboni. There's a Zamboni song. But there's something about watching that thing go, and it's laying down this, this fresh thing of ice. And we're like, I don't know what it is, but we all want to drive that Zamboni. We, everybody, every guy in this place wants to drive the Zamboni, I guarantee you. But they see, this is the picture of redemption. It's this story that is knit into us so deeply that we can't move away from it. It's why we love to see an old car fixed up to like factory showroom or an old home that was dilapidated and is built. We love to see it take on new life because there is a story of redemption that is within us. And it's a story of moving from the old, the old nature of who we are into a picture of the new nature, the new creation that we are in Christ. And this is the powerful delineator between the Old Testament, about the Old Testament teachings and the New Testament teachings. See, Jesus, he said this, right? 
He said, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Kind of when I was listening to that and kind of praying about that and thinking it was, it was kind of interesting to me because there's never a picture here where Jesus seems to be just discarding the old. As a matter of fact, there seems to be a care and a preservation for the old. He doesn't want the old wineskins to burst or the, or the tear in the cloth to become worse by just adding the new. But there is this concept that you just cannot mix the old and the new together, that there's a, there's a necessity for a fresh start. See, Jesus said that he didn't come to nullify the law or to eradicate the law, but to fulfill the law, right, on our behalf. And, and, and to fulfill the law of the old covenant, actually to fulfill it through his death. And we see that, that it's the idea that once that, that he's died in that, that he has fulfilled that covenant. That co- covenant then is no longer um, valid and it's time to enter into a new covenant. And so sometimes we, we, we wonder, we're like, um, you know, where does that come from? But this is a deep concept from way back in, in, in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This is the story of, of Jacob and Esau, right? And, and what it is is that Esau was the firstborn. Remember, we're in a, in a culture that is a patriarchal culture. And so the firstborn son is the one who has the right of inheritance. He's the one who ultimately will be groomed to become the patriarch. It's really a big deal to be the, the, the firstborn or the older son in this deal. But, but right here, there's this proclamation that the older should serve the younger, See, there's a reality in that in the Christian life, right? Is that our old nature or our old self is meant to be and now must be subservient to the new creation that is within us. That the older would be subservient or would serve what is actually younger or new in us. We're moving from a place of old, the old me, the old try, into the place of new creation. For me, that happened when I was 32 years old. I was late. I was a late bloomer. I was still doing a lot of research, in <laughs> field research in, in er, other areas. But at 32 years old, Jesus got a hold of me, and I moved from a place of being the old try into the place of being the new try. And there are still people who know the old try, and they can't believe that the new try actually goes to church, much less that he's a pastor of a church. They, I, I see them sometimes, and they just kind of look at me weird, like, Wow. Genesis 48, verse 14, and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. You see, the blessing that that Israel placed on them, he crossed his hands and he placed the blessing or his right hand on the younger instead of the older. It's that place of blessing. And this is what God is doing. We're told many times in the Bible to sing a new song to God. Psalms are full of it. In the book of Revelation, we see the fullness of that, that they are singing a new song. Listen to some of these verses. Isaiah 
Still Old Testament verses click. Um, can I click? Can I get a click up there? Click? Nobody up there? Did it click? Oh, nice. Thank you. Isaiah 42.9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah 43, 19, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Uh-oh. I'm going to keep reading here. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so it's this picture, the Old Testament, that the law, that it's not eradicated, it's not nullified, it's just made into something new. Instead of it being an external constraint or an understanding or this thou shalt not, thou shalt not, it turns more into a I don't want to because it's on the inside, because it begins to agree with the will of God because we have become a new creation because the spirit of God now resides in us that God is doing a new thing and we're empowered and we're able to make a difference and to do things in this world, to affect the world for change on behalf of Christ. It's the purpose of the church is first to worship and to bring glory to him and then to do the things that he's calling us to do. Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What's it saying? There's no external thing that matters. What this is about is it's about a new thing. It's about an internal thing. It's about a relationship with the living God. It's about, it's about being conformed to the image of Christ in our lives because the Spirit lives within us and because God is doing a new thing in us. Ephesians 4, 24, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, God is dealing with us on the most core place of, the, of who we really are. It's our identity. You have to know who you are. And, and, and some of the places where we get the furthest off in our lives is when we begin to believe that we're something that we're not. We begin to believe that we're our past or our actions. We begin to believe that, 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 that we're somehow compared to the world or the people around us or what, what's going on around us, and that is not the thing. It's a new self. We're a new creation created in Christ, right? Remember in, in Ephesians 2.10, it says that, is that uh, right after the kind of the, the famous little blurb on salvation there, it says this, it says, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works that he prepared in advance that you might walk in them. And, and that word Workmanship is the, the Greek word poema. It's the, where we get the word poem or poetry from. 
And what it's saying is that God has made you and me a new creation, that, there, that, that the life that you're living right now is meant to be a poem that God is speaking and telling to the world around you. That, that we have the, the opportunity, that we have to know who we really are. We have to understand the reality of our identity. You see, when the prodigal son returned and he came home, the very first thing that the father dealt with, with him with was his identity. He came back and said, I'm not worthy to be your son because of what I've done. And he said, he didn't even listen. It's an amazing thing. The father never visited the past with him. What the father did was move forward and he told one of his servants, go get the finest robe. Not the really good one, not the pretty nice one, not the one that's, no, go get the finest robe. Why? Because he is reestablishing him in his identity. The robe is a, is a picture of royalty. It's a picture of sonship. What he's telling him is, no, you're not just a hired servant. You're my son. And it's a picture of redemption. It's a picture of true identity, of who he is. The next thing he gave him was a ring for his finger, which represented authority. He gave him power back because this is the, the signet ring that if he agrees to something, then the family says they'll stand behind it. He just burned all kinds of resources to the ground. And now God is, after he gives him identity, he gives him authority. And then after he gives him authority, he puts sandals on his feet. Why? Because he was barefoot. Who went barefoot? Slaves went barefoot. It's a picture of his freedom from sin. And this is the picture of restoration. And this is the place of new creation that God is calling us to. Click. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Isaiah 62.2, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. What a picture of, of new, a name is identity, it's who you are. That if we're a new, if we're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. That the old has passed away, the new has come. And God is calling us to live into and understand and believe that new creation that we truly are, that we are holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That's what the Bible says about you if you're in Christ, that you're holy, you're blameless, and you're beyond reproach. In the book of Isaiah, it says that God has chosen to remember our sins no more, that he has buried them at the bottom of the ocean. It's done. It's settled. We aren't working or trying to appease or please or work our way up the ladder or look as good as somebody else around us. It is settled. We're a new creation, and we need to believe that and understand that we've been given identity, we've been given authority, and we've been set free from our, from our slavery of, to sin. You've been given a new name. We see it all throughout the Bible. Abram went to Abraham, Right? Simon to Peter, Jacob went to Israel. It's a picture of identity. It's a picture of new identity. It's, it's who we really are in Christ. And the new name that will all be given, the book of Revelation says even too, that we'll all be given a white stone with a new name, a new name, a completely new identity, the one that is pure and perfect and not stained by, by who we are. Click. 
Romans 7, 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Romans 6, 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Are you hearing a theme? There's a real theme through all this stuff. This thread runs through the whole thing. This is what God always intended was to recreate. He's, the, he's a redeemer. He's redemptive by his very nature. He's the one who makes all things new. He redoes everything in this thing, and he's redone us, and we just have to live into that and begin to believe this, not serving in the old way, which is trying to follow some written code or external things, but from an internal spirit, from something that's happening from the inside out. Second Corinthians 3. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Click. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews 10.20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This is the picture. This is what God is calling us to, is this picture of of newness, that he's going to make everything new. Remember, we've got an Old Testament, we've got a New Testament. There's an old earth, there's going to be a new earth. There's an old you and me, there can be a new you and me. And so I don't know where you sit today, this morning. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never believed on Jesus in your life. Maybe you've never considered or, or, or really went to the cross and, and, and come to a, a realization of your own personal need for a Savior, your need for redemption, to be made new to be set free from just trying really hard to be different or better this time, but to actually be made new, to be empowered, to be given a new identity, and to be given the authority to be able to walk that out. What an amazing thing. And you simply do that by receiving Jesus, by by saying yes to this deal. See, the Bible says that Jesus went to the cross to pay for the sins of the world, and so he makes available a relationship to whosoever would call upon his name. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, it says, shall be saved. So when we recognize the reality of our desperation, our deep need for forgiveness, our deep need for a Savior, and we just call out, the Bible says that he is faithful on his end to meet us there and to give us salvation when we ask for it. As to this kind of this term, this, this concept, this idea of fasting, I, w- I want to finish here by reading the end of Isaiah chapter 58 and what it talks about, about fasting, what God says about this. And he says this, he says, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? 
to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up steadily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So God calls us to, fa uh, to, to fast in this manner, right? This idea, and, and again, this idea of fasting, even as it's laid out here in Isaiah 58, is the idea of putting off one thing for another. And the reality of it is, is that if we're going to do some of these things that it's calling us to, there's a reality that we're going to have to put off one thing at times so that we can have another. We can't just be consumers to the nth degree all the time. We need to leave margins in our time and in our finances and things like that for other people. We need to be willing to let go and to lose a little bit that someone else might gain a whole lot. God is making it all new. One day, here's the promise to all believers, and here's what we should desire so much for all people. Chapter 21 of Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said also, Write down these words, for they are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, their portion will be in the lake that burns. It's something that should set us back. It's something that should, should cause us to have all hope is that God has created us to be a new, a new creation and, and holds that ready for everybody else, but that there's also a reality that we, we have to choose that, and so do others. And so we have a message, and it's a message of hope, and we have to go out the door with that today. And we have to... Be quick to understand that there are times where I need to put something off for something else. I need to put off the physical, that the spiritual might rise up, that it might be the strongest in my day. Um, so, a couple thoughts. 
a challenge to fast and pray this week um, and to remember who you really are, to know your true identity, to know that you're in Christ, that you're holy, blameless, beyond reproach, that, that this isn't, if you're in Christ, it's, it's not about pleasing God. He's pleased. It's just about kind of getting out of the way and letting him live through us. That's what we want to do. So Lord, we just ask that this week. We ask that you would help us, that we would, that we would be a people who um, truly are ready to, to put off one thing for another, that we might recognize that there's, there are greater values in some things than what we tend to place in them. And then there's some things that we place great value in that have very little worth in reality. So Lord, help us that we wouldn't drink from a well that just leaves us thirsty, but that we would find the true satisfaction that's in you. I'm praying, Lord, this, this week that we would, we would be a church who's, who's in prayer, that we would be praying for both the, the, the people within this church body, the greater church body of Sheridan, the community of Sheridan, our nation, and the world that we live in. Lord, help us to take time and to remember that that's important work. It's powerful work. The beauty of it is it's work that any of us can do and accomplish, and it's the most powerful thing in your kingdom. So Lord, we pray also, too, that you would remind us who we are, that we're yours, that you bought us, that you've purchased us, that you've given us a new nature, a new, we're a new creation in you, that our identity is in you and not of the things of this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.